I'm creating a collection of stories showcasing resilient people who overcome unimaginable hardships while finding beauty in the ups and downs of life. Every moment is significant. This is Push Diaries Podcast. I'm your host, Tess. Oh, how long have I been paralyzed? Actually, it'll be 20 years in January. My daughter's going to be 20. This is Annette. She was paralyzed from an epidural gone wrong. I was able to get in touch with her after I saw the recent documentary on HBO called Any One of Us. Here's her story. So I'm excited to have you on. Thank you for being on. This is super exciting. Um, because the world of social media today, it's like, how can we not take advantage of this, right? And, and right. be able to impact people's lives. So thanks for being on. So you're in California, right? We came out here almost six years ago um, because uh, our littlest one, We I have five daughters, and Georgia was two months old, and Bill said he just wanted to change it up. We had all the babies in Connecticut. So we got married in Chicago. My husband took me to Connecticut. Sadly, I got hurt in Connecticut, um, but we had all the girls there, and then I think he just got to the point where he needed a change, and he said, I need to pick up and go, and I said, well... You know, he's sort of done a lot for me. Well, and we've been on here for Project Walk. The reason why he knew San Diego is because 2009, 2010, I was still working on trying to walk. I was almost 10 years out of my injury because I got hurt in 2000. And I was, he's like, well, we'll go try Project Walk. And it was pretty much thriving at that time. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go give it everything I've got at Project Walk. Because I had gotten some things back. So I thought... I'm going to try to make the most of what I've gotten back to this point. And he loved San Diego. But we went back home after that year and, you know, because it was really just to focus on therapy. We went back home to Connecticut. And a few years later, he said, I loved it out there. Let's go back. And I'm like, what? (laughs) But I thought, okay, he's really been a fabulous husband. I think I'll, I'll give that a try. I can't say California is. What is California? California, that could be its own. Actually, I'm thinking of writing a book called Five Years in California. California is its own interesting, crazy, beautiful place to live, but it's like all paradoxes, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I know. I can only imagine. Now, for the listeners that don't know what Project Walk is, can you just give a little snippet about what it is and how you heard about it? I heard about it in physical therapy when I was first in physical therapy on the East Coast at Wallingford. That was my first rehab place. Someone had mentioned Project Walk, and they, I think at that point, is only in California, is a place just designated to helping people with spinal cord injury and helping them get on their feet. And I think they were of the mindset at the time that therapy and constant therapy and just, you know, you, if you don't move it, you lose it type of attitude that that will stimulate more regeneration, even if you are a year out or two years out. You know what I mean? You can always get something back. And so they had Eastim and they had, you know, the unweighted walking and they had, well, all, all, every kind of exercise you can imagine for balance and using what you did have and trying to recruit what you didn't have. And I thought they were very progressive and very good. In the end, it's closed now, actually. I'm not sure if they're still in Boston. I know they had got a place open in Boston. I think, gosh, I think that's a whole complicated thing about yeah. people with spinal cord injury and therapy because right. traditional therapies can be helpful, but non-traditional therapies can also be beneficial. And I do think you need someone who's an expert, but I do think the rehab setting unless they're really progressive, is usually not helpful. They don't do that much. They do the limited things. They do the things that are sort of tried and true, they're not out of the box. I don't think they work you hard enough. Project Walk worked you really hard. You know, you were there working out 
for a good period of time every day. I went to another place at the time I was doing Project Walk. I was doing awakenings and I was doing uh, acupuncture and I was doing Ralphing, you know, for my muscles. And I was just every single thing, modality that I could do for my body, I was doing. Yeah. It's almost like that became your job. I mean, just anything. You know, it's so funny you say that because I can almost say that with a little bit of regret because in my mindset when I was first hurt was, you know, the world, I can't survive in a world that I'm not walking in. I'm going to be at my best only if I'm walking. I can only be the best for my children if I'm walking. They're going to have the better life if I'm walking. So I gave up divinity school. I was going to Yale Divinity School because I thought, how can I go to divinity school, try to walk and raise my family? I better drop one. I'm going to drop divinity school and I'm going to raise my family and try to walk. And looking back on that, I don't know. I probably am saying that because I didn't end up getting up to walk. So then I'm like, shit, I've gotten that divinity degree and I would be doing something else for work and for the things I'm passionate about. But for some reason, that was my choice at the time. That was the journey that I took. And I don't want to spend too much time regretting those decisions. I did learn a lot along the way. I met a lot of incredible people. I did get my body in tremendous shape and... You know, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I felt that was, but it was also mindset, Teresa, because I was like, how can I survive and not be walking? I can't enjoy this life more. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, maybe you owed it to yourself too, to figure out really what you could do and to rule out the things you maybe couldn't. Because how else would you know if you didn't try as hard as you possibly could, you know, but I can see how maybe there's some regret there. Like, man, now knowing what you now know today, right? Maybe you would have spent your time differently, but how do you really know? you know, until you try. It's a good, it's a really good point that you make with that. Because if I hadn't done everything, maybe I'd be sitting here like literally a month and a half away from being 20 years in a wheelchair. And I'd be saying, did I do everything I could, but except I know I did. I know I did. Yeah really amazing because you know a lot of people would crumble and say you know I can't do this or maybe they would sit on it for 10 years five years even a year but now I'm sure you're so happy with where you are as far as what you've learned in your new body as a person in a chair if you're okay let's rewind a little bit and talk about the paralysis and when it started and kind of your initial reaction to that if you're okay with us going there oh (laughs) I would love to hear about what happened up to that point how your pregnancy went what was normal about it really anything you want to share that happened through an epidural correct that's correct okay yeah so I'm so curious because I know a ton of listeners are going to hear that and go what what (laughs) and I don't want them to worry but I also want people to understand that as unexpected spinal cord injury is or having a tumor take over your spine is they're both very unexpected it's not something that anyone ever expects right so help me and the listeners kind of understand how surprised you were and how you felt and kind of walk us through what you went those days oh i i would be happy to i think it's really interesting i always say to the girls it's never the things that you think are going to happen that happen i mean it's always the things that surprise you You know, you don't know on any given day what's going to happen to you. And you have all these worries and fears. And it's so funny. Any of my really big worries and fears have never been the things that ended up happening. (laughs) Anyway, so now I had a really great pregnancy with Natalie, our first. And my pregnancy with Anna, our second, was also very normal and, and, you know, uh, uninteresting, which is a good thing when you're pregnant. And then I went in to have her. 
my doctor was out of town. I had a really good OB. Happened to be that I think all of these things played into that final thing happening the way it happened. But she happened to be out of town when I went in to have Anna. And interestingly enough, she was coming back into town on January 11th. And I always kept that little card that was my next appointment date. But I went in to have Anna on January 4th. I ended up having her on the 5th. But I always, because I had in my mind, and then I found that card and I thought, if she had been there, I just don't think. She was so conscientious, but then she wasn't in town. So I go into my water breaks, I go into the hospital and they're calling in an on-call doctor who didn't really know me. She really didn't get there till it was time to push. She got there after the epidural. I think if she had been there, she would have seen that the epidural did not go well. But the doctor who came in to give me the epidural was at this point is like one o'clock in the morning. Also just a terrible time to be in a hospital. But Anytime at those skeleton weekends and like in the middle of the night, that's when everything happens. She came in and she was sort of uh, curt, you know, not a mean person, but disheveled in a way. And she went to give me the epidural, which I was asking for. I really wanted it for the pain. I thought the baby was coming. And right away when she started to administer the epidural, I was leaned over. She said, I'm going to do this and that. She was sort of explaining things. And then she put does whatever she does in my back. And then she puts in the chemical into the epidural an electrical shock went down both of my legs simultaneously that lifted me off the table, which wow. she got angry with and said, stop moving around like that. And I was like, oh, no. And I said to Bill, oh, my God, something just happened. And he's like, and then I remember taking a breath and saying, I'm still breathing. <laughs> but right moments later, seconds, minutes, I don't know, maybe between seconds and minutes, my legs just started burning and just on Fire. At that point, I was saying that, and I had sort of screamed because so nurses had come in from the outside. They thought everything was fine. I was explaining my legs were burning. I think they thought maybe we've hit a nerve here. Do you know what I mean? Not necessarily like we've done something really horrible. But Anna came soon after that. The doctor came, and Anna came soon after that. What was really troubling about the whole incident was that the aftermath with Natalie, the right away, the epidural was wearing off. I was getting better. I could get up and go to the bathroom. I could use my legs. This the opposite was happening. I wasn't getting up. I was saying something isn't right. They were saying, oh, you're being histrionic. Oh, you're being, you're just, you had a baby. Let's give her some Valium. I'm like, no, 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 no. Something is not right. I didn't want my husband to leave the hospital. He's like, I'm going to go tell my dad, mom, you've had the baby. I'll come back. I'm like, you can't leave. You know, I was something, I can't describe it. It was just, you know, and I couldn't, and yet they had come in. Oh, she's fine. And finally, when they did the MRI, so now it's into the next day and they're letting me sit there and I'm not going to the bathroom and why am I have all these CCs from the catheter and it's nothing is. And I was explaining that my burning sensation was turning into a numbness, like my legs started to feel heavy, you know, like they weren't attached to my body. It was like a strange and they went and I got the second MRI. They missed it on the first MRI. The second MRI happened. Because nothing was, I'm like, something is not right. And another day had gone by and a neurologist came in and sat next to me and he had that look, you know, that look like I'm about to be delivered some really bad news. Yes, I'm <laughs> and, familiar with that horrible look. Look, and she just sat there really quietly and said, you've had a spinal cord injury. Do you know what that is? And I said, no, I'm, I was happy. I'm like, great. You know what happened? Can you fix it? Like, yeah. what's wrong with it? You know? No. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. Um, they sort of explained it. We're going to transfer you to a spinal cord injury, a center, like Yale. You have a choice to go to the city or to Yale. I said, I think we should go to Yale. It'd be easier to get to for the family. And then that was the beginning of the journey. I mean, I think anyone in that moment is, and I just had a baby, 
disbelief. And, you know, I don't think at that moment I was crying as much as I was in complete shock. And I had to leave the hospital to go to transfer to Yale right away. And uh, Anna had to stay at the hospital. So I was heartbroken over being separated from my newborn baby who was just 24 hours old. And then I nursed her because they started pumping me full of steroids. And then at Yale is when it really all began when I slowly, after talking to the neurologist there as a wonderful man, started to grasp what was going on. It took a while for that. I mean, then the tears began. And I think I cried for the next year. Yeah, I think that I just was devastated and heartbroken and felt sort of abandoned by God, abandoned. You know, I, I just... Again, I think I sort of say this in that film, Any One of Us. I don't think that it's not until that that level of suffering happened to me where I couldn't just fix it and make it right and work really hard to make it perfect and make it better and overcome it. I had to just be in it and endure it. I don't think I ever really knew what actual suffering was. And then when I knew it, I was like, how could this happen to me? And it was only many years later that I thought, Annette, how could you think that you wouldn't experience real suffering and real loss and I felt a little bit ashamed but of course you know at the time I had to give myself I was young I was 32 years old I had just had a baby I mean I just didn't know what was going on (laughs) I totally I totally can relate with you about the suffering too I have asked God the same questions because why should we be spared when there are you know wars going on and babies starving to death all around the world and it's awful but there is pain in this world and you know we're not any different than anyone else next to us that's going through something so I think that's very well said and super enlightening too for people to hear that you know none of us are spared I mean we're all we're all you know the same likelihood of this stuff happening I mean it's just something that's good to be aware of well a friend of mine one time she was sort of funny and she's had sort of a really I guess she would even say, you know, a charmed life in in many ways that she said, well, I'm always scared that, you know, the shoe's going to drop. And I said, um, don't worry, it will, but enjoy it while it's not. (laughs) Um, It does make you enjoy it. And even now I know things will happen. Things can happen. That gives me this little edge on appreciating how sweet certain things really are. Um, And I have that perspective now and I've had it for a long time going forward. But yeah, I mean, I even say to my daughters, and I'm not trying to burst their bubble, things will happen. This is part of the human experience. And thank God, if you have people that love you, they can really bear, help you bear that burden. I don't think that life is fair. I mean, that that reality also struck me. And even though I agree, I mean, I knew people suffer, people lose children, people see horrific things, people experience, I mean... Why did I think? I just, I wonder about that. But, you know, I feel more connected to all those unknown people than I ever did before. Yeah. Now, how old, tell me again, how old were your your kids? Because you had four kids when you had the epidural at that time? No, I had just Natalie. Anna was my second. And I went on to have three more. And in between some of those, I had a couple of miscarriages that were, you know, again, sort of startling. You know, I mean, I had four children and four births, four live births, and they were went beautifully. And then I had three miscarriages in a row. And then I, 46, had this beautiful little Georgia. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, it's, ama- it's amazing to hear your story. And the fact, too, that you said, you know what, after, after you were a mama in a wheelchair, it didn't stop you. And you continued. I mean, I think that's beautiful. And 
you know, even your, even having your girls grow up and live their life around a mama who can adapt so well. I mean, I know you don't feel your best every day because you're human just like me, but I think it's going to be really empowering for them to see what you do and what, you know, lights you up as you continue your life and be the best that you can. And Do you ever think about that yourself? Um, About having kids or about how I'm impacting people around me? Having children. Um, yeah, so my fiance doesn't want to have kids, so we, we probably won't. We've talked about maybe adopting down the road. With my fusion, I do have a lot of chronic pain. And, you know, for me, Annette, I worry that I wouldn't be the mama I would want to be while the kids are little. You know, mm-hmm. I worry that my chronic pain would be too much to be the be the mother and enjoy it and things like that how I would want. Now, that's not to say I know that if God had that in store for me, he would bring me through it and he would make me strong enough to do it. It's something I'm still grappling with because, you know, two years ago, I didn't think Tyler and I were going to work out. And then here we are two years later and we're engaged. And, you know, it's very exciting. But I didn't even know, you know, I went through thoughts, is anyone going to want to be with me? You know, I have, I had such an enormous rehab plan that, you know, just, just since last year, I've finally become more independent. So I think I'm still working through a lot of those feelings and figuring out what it is that I really want. As of right now, I don't have any exciting news or plans on the table, but gosh, it's ladies like you and a coworker I worked with last year at a um, center for independent living. She was a clerk at our, she was the receptionist and I was a social worker there and she has three girls too, I think, or is it two? And, you know, she told me, she looked me down in the eyes and said, you can be a parent if you want, you know? So I know that I just have a lot to think about, I guess, before I go there, you know? So you think it's hard to find someone? I thought it I thought it would be hard to find a partner and that's sad. I think, you know, I maybe let myself down in that moment when I thought I wouldn't be wanted. Because, you know, just as I'm telling you how strong you are and how empowering it is to hear your story, I never should have thought that. You know, I never should have thought that I wouldn't have something to offer someone else and be able to make someone else happy. So I am happy to report that that's no longer the story, but I definitely have some things to figure out as far as like having a kid would go. So. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, so what do you think? Do you, do you, what do you think it's like for him? For Tyler? Mm-hmm. He's so supportive of me and um, really in tune with what I need. You know, he, he knows my routine, how I get up, how I get ready and how I get ready to go to bed. And it's like, He'll lay, you know, my bed pads out for me at night because I'm in constant. Oh. And I'll go to the back bedroom and it's like everything's ready. And we have a really good partnership. You know, I'll do the cooking and he'll help me clean up. And I feel like we really um, balance each other out well. I think I can do a better job loving myself through all of this. And that's where he is so great. And I want to make sure, too, that I'm there for him. And that was actually a question on my sheet, too, is how have you... And your husband been able to get through, you know, because I'm sure while you felt like your legs weighed a million pounds and that sensation was something you got used to with your paralysis. How did you and your husband work through a caregiver role versus a husband role? Do you have caregivers that come in or did you? Um, I, He really did 
mostly everything and learned how to do everything, even the capping. He felt like he would be so funny because when, you know, it being my husband, I mean, I understand I wanted him to be the person. I didn't know if he'd want to be that person, but he just had no issues with it. Um, with that kind of thing, he could handle it. Uh, he would be the most gentle person with me and under, and I felt comfortable enough to say everything to him. Like this hurts, that hurts, or, you know, you can get more frustrated and, Sometimes with someone else, it's hard to to be that way with them. And with him, it was very easy to be that way with him. But I, I was always really and truly, I mean, it's not in my nature to be that mean and grumpy. So I was always pretty, pretty easy patient. But I could express those other private moments with him much better um, than I could with just a person, um, especially with some of the nurses. Some of them were so wonderful, but some of them were a lot, a lot less gentle than others. And also, you know, I had a lot of spasticity in my legs and my feet never, I didn't like anyone touching my feet. And Bill was really sensitive about all those things. I will say that over the years, <laughs> he went through a really, really difficult time. And I think my injury was the first catalyst for that. And I think over time, he felt like a lot of his dreams and how he pictured our life going when that got interrupted and didn't get put back together neat and tidy the way we all hoped it would, you know, me up and walking and all of that. I think I took on a certain path for coping with it. And he took on a path that was really destructive for him. And I feel like He's gotten through that now, but it took him, I don't think you mind me saying this, but going through rehab, he became addicted, really addicted to Vicodin. And I think it's so, so funny. In one of the rehab places we went to, one of the therapists said, it's sort of like the Vicodin is like a blanket, you know, but once you look underneath the blanket, what's underneath there? All the critters, you know, so you don't have the Vicodin anymore to help you. And you've got to deal with that stuff. But in, when he when he finally got through dealing with that, and the place that he went to for detox was just incredible. He got through the wanting it so easily through the, the physical part of it was easier for him to get over than now I'm left with just this is this is our life. And I love Annette, but I couldn't save her and I couldn't be heroic in that way. And I couldn't make all this better. And I was right there when it happened and I didn't do anything. I mean, he had a lot of guilt too, I think. But for him, that guilt, like I said, took on a destructive role. And then he just had to sort of mask all of that pain. I would say uh, the the greatest, you know, achievement in my life, beside feeling at times, you know, a little bit brave. I'm not that brave of a person, a little bit brave having children. My greatest like personal achievement is learning how to love someone through loving my husband because I he's not an easy person. I know I'm not either, but he would he would even say and my girls would say he's more challenging than I am in that way, but I learned to I learned to love someone through being married to him and having all of this happen with us to want their happiness even more than I wanted my own. I I know that's easy to say when you have children, when it's your spouse I never thought I could get to the point where just to see him happy, no matter what that meant, or to see him more happy is sort of a a word I don't even like to use, but to see him finally at peace again, that meant more to me than, I mean, I realized this is truly what love is. And even though I was so in love the day I got married, and that's why I wrote my book, Where Fairy Tales Go, and I call it Where Fairy Tales Go, I had that that envision of the fairy tale, and my husband is just so cute and adorable, And I was so crazy in love with him. I just, when all of that got deconstructed 
the only thing that was left was just this this really pure pure love that I have for him that I don't think I've ever really had. I mean, I always felt that from my father a really pure love, but my father again, it's easy to love someone like my father. My husband has had a lot of different challenges that I've He's, and he probably would say, funny that I'm not walking, you know, that I've helped him more than he's helped me. So, did that make sense? Yeah, no, it did. I think that that's really, really cool that you, you feel like you've learned to love him. I mean, as much as you've lost, it's really neat that you've been able to find a purpose as far as, like, fulfilling yourself with experiencing that deep love. Because I think a lot of us don't experience that until we're you know, elderly and going through loss together as a couple. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like life made you go through all of that much sooner than you ever should have or maybe could have had all of that not happened. Does that make sense? Well, I think some people from talking to different women about marriage, and this is something I I really do care about and I'm passionate about, you know, they're good at paying bills together. They're good at having a partnership together. But I think, I mean, obviously, like I said, I was in love with my husband but to really love someone and to help to feel as though you're truly helping them in their life. I definitely always feel that with your children. But, you know, I my husband has been a tremendous help to me. And the opportunity came when he really was despairing that I was able to be a, a true help to him. And I think it was really just that he knew no matter what he was going through, no matter what was happening or how despondent he became, that I still really loved him. And that was not hard for me. Thank thank God it wasn't. But I feel like, wow, I was able to help him through that. He's you know, again, and other people were also involved and, and very helpful. But I mean it's it's a long getting someone through that addiction is a long process. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I do feel partly the blame, which is why I think that when things like this happen when you're married, I was always in my mind like, oh, my gosh, is the injury what brought this out in him? No, 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 You know, and all of that guilt that I had. I already felt bad about the injury, and then I felt worse. Like, look what it's doing to the person that I love. I don't feel that way anymore. I do think that was the catalyst, though. I mean, I have to say it because – Who's to say why? I don't know why people think that because something difficult or bad happens, that means this is why it's my least favorite saying, Teresa. I'm just going to put it out there. People, things happen for a reason. No, not always. Well, you can make a good, you can make good from anything bad. I believe that with with God's help, with love, with purpose and meaning for sure. But not everyone. I. Bill was not even as prepared as I was to handle what happened. I handled it over time better than he did. Over time, he sort of fell apart. And it just, he could not grapple with a lot of the different pieces of it. Uh-huh. And, I, and then he just got angry and resentful. And that turned into him asking it, as I told you. But I feel like, wait, that doesn't mean that he was able to handle it. It doesn't mean it happened to him and he was the one who was ready for it. When people would say to us, Oh, it happened to you because you guys could handle it. Not really. You know, it didn't it didn't go so great. There were some really, really difficult, difficult times that I think some marriages don't even get through. And oh. actually, there's a statistic about women in wheelchairs that are already married. Like 85 percent of the men leave or 87. It's like 13 percent stay. Wow. It's not, oh, it's, dev- it's, it's devastatingly that, that high. Is, that yeah, it's devastatingly high. And <laughs> That's something I wanted to look up were some statistics about marriage and, mm-hmm. you know, 
And that's insane. 13% only stay together. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, not when the not when the men's injured. When the man's injured, the women stay. It's different. Oh, sure. Yeah. Of course. Wow. And is yeah. that so? That's when when an injury happens after a marriage has already been formed. That's correct. Wow. After marriage has been formed, the they told me the statistic in rehab. So you know, about 20 years ago, you know, like. 13% of the men stayed. They were just giving me, they were just giving me my bad news altogether. <laughs> yeah, geez, just, just so you know, don't be surprised if it's like, okay. Yeah, you'll be on your own raising. And there had been a woman in, in rehab who I met whose husband did leave. And she had actually even said to me, are you taking any, you know, antidepressants? And I said, no. And she's like, don't worry, you will be. And I'm like, oh, jeez, <laughs> you're a ray yeah. of sunshine. But I felt like I could, I always, I believed in my heart that he would stay. But it was always difficult to hear people say, oh, you're so lucky he stayed with you. Even though I knew I was, I would have stayed with him. I mean, isn't that love? Isn't that what the right. fact made? <laughs> you could have, you could have left too and you didn't leave. So that. Most you know, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's a union. You both have to be willing to put the, put in the work, and I'm so happy that you guys were able to push through all of that because I can only imagine how hard it was for both of you. And, you know, it's not, you know, you're right when you say, you know, the events that happened happened to you, but that's not a guilt that you should have to carry. You know what I mean? Yes. I go, I go through that, too, with my cancer. You know, my mom has always been depressed you know, my whole childhood. She's a great mother, but she's just always kind of been a little bit sad and a little bit reserved and a little bit quick to feeling defeated at times when things got tough. She was a nurse though, which I think is a beautiful twist to my story because she really wanted to be right there bedside with me, helping me get cared for, heal up from my horrible injuries, go through the rehab, go through the chemo, go through the surgery. And now, you know, I'm almost, I am five years out because my surgery was in August. I'm Does that mean you're five years cancer-free too or yes. no? Yes. There is a little arthritic spot on S1. It's like the size of a, well, I don't actually know how big it is. Maybe like a peanut M&M. So they're keeping an eye on that. I think it's really common for someone like, me with a fusion especially you know my spine is so straight and then my hips curve at a 90 degree angle as you know I'm sitting all the time so you know bone degeneration for me might be more common too with the chemotherapy and all of that so we're keeping an eye on it but yes I'm cancer free they found that spot in June so yeah I'm just keeping wait what is the spot you said it's arthritic yeah, so it showed up on a scan. They think it's arthritis, and I can send you a picture too and post it on the, on my Instagram too for the listeners to see. But it's a little arthritic spot, and and it looks, you know, I guess when they look at an MRI or like an X-ray scan, they can see what an osteosarcoma in a bone would look like, what a tumor in a bone would look like versus arthritis. The mm -hmm. way that it looks and that the way that it's behaving. They think it's arthritis, and I hope to God it is. But, you know, just like how you and I have been through one big trial, I, sometimes <laughs> I think, what the heck, why not another one? So I'm going to just, you know, keep my chin up and hope everything's fine. I will keep you posted because January or February I'll get those scans again. Initially, they were scanning me every, like, three months. Then we kind of went to four, then we went to five. I think I've had one six-month scan. So before June, I had it done in December. 
And so now it's starting to become time again, you know, come January, February, it'll be time to get those scans done again. So I actually had a doctor's appointment this morning and they ordered those scans. So, But do you I'll, feel like if they were, I mean, if they thought it was, wouldn't they, they would have been all over it, right? I mean, they yeah. would have yeah, like, let's wait and see, would they? I, or? No, no, I think you're right. If it, if it mimicked or looked anything like a bone tumor, they would have, you know, done a biopsy or done blood work. I think that's the thing too. My blood work is normal. So as yes. far as like my white blood cell count goes or the precursors for cancer that you can see in the blood, mm-hmm. they're not worried about it. You know, and that's where I, the spinal cord injury or the disability or the paralysis for me is like a whole different can of worms with cancer. And, you know, sometimes I feel more stunned, and this makes sense too, by my cancer because, you know, my paralysis was a secondary issue. (laughs) So it's just scary. And I know you get that, but, you know, as long as I'm blessed to draw air in through my lungs, I want fire today and you know before I got sick I was working in hospice and I felt so filled by being with people losing a loved one I mean such an awful thing to go through but as you know death and life are, are totally you know intertwined in this life and I think it also prepared me for knowing the possibility of my own death if I couldn't have gotten better so man this this world is packed full of like life lessons isn't it some of us are blessed to experience them at a younger age and some of us experience it until they're 80 or they never really do but did it make you did you did your experience with hospice make you less afraid of death I think it did I I think it did I think had I not had the drive and the interest and the passion to work with hospice and to really understand it and be able to empathize with people and kneel at their bedside you know what I mean Mm-hmm. Um, it, it did. It made me more comfortable with it in a weird way. Do you still do that kind of work? I don't right now. I'm thinking about volunteering because I don't have a job right now. I really want to kind of land with two feet. And I keep saying walk with this or run with this. But I'm like, I should say roll with this. But I really want to hit the ground running with this. And so I was a social worker. I really like to talk and connect with people. So I thought, gosh, if I'm not really excited about sitting down and writing my book at this time in my life, I could just try a podcast first and maybe this will be more fulfilling for me anyway, as far as putting in time and being able to talk with people. I I know maybe for you, it's different. You have a family and whatever your children are connected with, you are connected with in some ways. But for me as a, you know, when I went through it, I was a single woman and I did, I felt really isolated. I was in a small town. You know, I was with my family, which I'm so grateful to be with them or have had their help. But it, it's been isolating for me trying to figure out what I should put my energy into, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I'm really excited about this podcast for that reason. You know, Stitcher's free. People are going to be able to go on there, find my podcast and listen to it right now or wherever they're at. You know, if they're there's someone in a situation like your husband or going through something you or I have or something completely unrelated, but that has some overlap, I think that it will be really powerful. And same with your book. I mean, people have this facade that everything's fine. And like you tell your girls, some, like things are going to happen. It just is like, I don't know. I think sharing stories is, I remember um, 
you at when I was in the hospital, a couple of people brought me some books and they were people's stories of going through, you know, a spinal cord injury, one of them. And it was Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, that was yeah. it was though. I mean, I did read it and it did, it did help me. And, and I think sharing stories is the way that we do connect with people and the way we feel like we're not alone. And I also think I just read this really interesting article. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal this morning. We're talking about teenage girls feeling more isolated. But I do think with social media there, I don't know why social media is so incredible and so helpful in so many ways. But somehow people still feel isolated in the midst of all of this amazing social media. So, yeah, sure. I understand all of that. But there's nothing that replace. But they were just one of the teachers comments about these you know, teenage girls she sees that feel isolated or seem to look isolated and be isolated is that they still have a hard time, even though they're always like looking at their phone, having authentic relationships and authentic exchanges with other human beings. So important in your daily life that even if we had this conversation, it's just very uplifting for me to share. It's very uplifting to listen to you. You still need that. I'm going to be done with this. I'm going to go about my day and I still need to have people in my life and and real exchanges that are meaningful and you know what I'm saying so I I think that social media on one hand is this amazing incredible powerful communication instrument for all of us and we can use it in that way it can be used for such destruction as well and it can be used for such hate so this podcast that you are proposing and that you're starting which is such an honor to be a part of is going to be used for goodness. And I think that you need a lot of those voices out there as well. There's already enough of that. I mean, my daughter will tell me every day, she's like, you will not believe what people are saying right now on Twitter. I'm like, I, I don't I don't want to know. I just don't think that that's ever going to get us to a better place. And I am a personal believer in throwing as much love on any situation as you can, because I've never seen that go wrong. You know, we just have to keep on keeping on with that. And less judgment. Absolutely. And it's sad, too, because like you're saying, it can be destructive. People are so quick to cut others down or give harsh opinions about something that they don't fully understand because it is right at your fingertips and it's easy to comment. But why not lift up the empowering stories of perseverance and, like you said, throwing love on it, grace, patience. I mean... Won't that go so much farther than the superficial, mean comments that otherwise is all we hear? Like, you can't turn on the news nowadays and have people bring up the positive things. It's always the worst, you know, possible news people can share. It's always the thing that gets the headlights. So I want to make sure that our story gets the headline, too, so that people know that they're not alone through, you know, the unexpected and the dark times to really push through. I think that disability has a way of of isolating, though, like you said. And I think that there's people in wheelchairs that still feel sort of disenfranchised and feel sort of lonely and isolated. They can't get out as much or the way they'd like to. So that's why they need to hear that we're there, too, that that's a real thing. That's a real thing to feel to feel alone. And I think I read something about loneliness once and I thought just like how that's almost like one of the, you know, it's like people say, well, this is a hardship, but that's a hardship. Yeah, I have a lot of, phys- I don't I don't think I have the kind of physical pain you have. I mean, I'm always going to have that nerve pain, I think, from my knees to my feet. Thank goodness it's just sort of focused and isolated there. Most days I just sort of ignore it. But when I think to myself, 
would I rather have the nerve pain I experience and that I get a little tired of, or would I rather feel lonely? Honestly, I do think that loneliness is its own kind of pain. And I feel so happy to have the family and not to feel that loneliness and just so I'll put up with my nerve pain, you know, but loneliness is a real thing that should be addressed too. And maybe that's why people get out there and they are, they're hating, but I know that disability itself can be, I know I get discouraged and I, you know, the help of my family, as I said in the movie as well, like to go to a soccer game or something and try to get there and make it happen only to get there have to go to the bathroom, find that the door is locked to the gym, I can't get in, I can't go, I have an accident. I mean, this is just, my girls are probably like, mom, I just, that's when I was saying like how I can feel bad sometimes. There's like a whole circus that can happen just because of needing to use a bathroom that's accessible. You know, I mean, it's right. right. <laughs> when anybody has to be able to go to the bathroom, you know? I, I know. Annette, tell me what you can feel then, and where does where does your paralysis begin? And then you did say you passed. Um, Not anymore. No, I I got the ability oh. to go back to the bathroom three years after I got hurt. Wow. So your sensation came back, and you were able to eliminate. Yeah, okay. I can go to the bathroom. So my S one, I can you know go to the bathroom by myself. I can poop by myself. I don't need to use this. I don't need to do like a routine. Um, that came back actually after a year. I was able to get that that back and it It really is great not to have to use that the bowel program um I did that for a year like I said and and it was it did work for me but at some point one of the doctors did one of those I don't know I think it was my urologist maybe he said you know it seems to me like you're gonna get these control of your bowels back and I said oh I am and at that point I really couldn't feel when I had to go so I was like I don't know but you know what he ended up being right on about that and my bladder came a couple years later it just got to the point where I felt when I had to go I learned how to hold it Uh, sometimes the spasm can be a little tricky and I I mean I have like a it's not perfect, but I mean, I have like a 15 minute window. So usually I can, I can be pretty good about that. If I have a bathroom around me, I'm great. That's why I soccer games and like that. If I know there's a bathroom there, I mean, I have no problem going. Then I know if I end up having to go, I've got 15 minutes. How can that not be enough time? Unfortunately, it's just sometimes it gets me into trouble, but I'm pretty good about what I drink. And if I'm going to have to be out and about where I don't know exactly if there's going to be a a bathroom, that's going to give me that 15 minutes. But I would prefer that over caffeine because caffeine was like this root of infection. You know, I could not until I was on a low dose antibiotic all the time. I never really got my infections under control. I just didn't. Wow. So three years out, I was pregnant with Ingrid. And during that pregnancy, I remember I was riding the Easton bike. You know, I was all attached with the pads, trying to work out, trying to get my legs back. Um, And the bike was really being ridden for me with the Easton. But I felt the sensation that I had to go to the bathroom. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go to the bathroom right here, right now on this bike. And that is what's going to happen. And I felt I could hold it somehow. And I tried to hold it. And I did. I was successful. And I went to the bathroom to void. And I think I thought, I just think I emptied my bladder. And and my doctor's like, well, we could find out. We could cap you and see if you've got anything left. We could do an ultrasound and see what's in there. Wide emptied. Wow. And from that moment on, I knew I had something to work with. I still have to really focus. I mean, I will always have to probably focus on really emptying my bladder. I have to, when I go to the bathroom, it's like a concentration. Yeah. (laughs) I don't make any connection. Yeah, really focus in on what you're doing. But how amazing that that came through. I mean, that is incredible. 
no, 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 I'm, that's a gift, it's a gift. It's, it's seriously <laughs> so incredible that you were biking and maybe even just your body connecting in that way was able to help your bladder really contain itself and not. They think it was the pregnancy actually. Oh, really? Well, my one doctor at the time, he's passed on now. He was a great doctor, though, in Washington University, St. Louis, said to me, I actually think that you've had some sort of spontaneous healing with this pregnancy. I just don't, ex cannot explain why this happened. You're three years out. There's really no, something happened. You know, I got some healing there. Okay, I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about Beauty Counter. They make amazing lotions and balms that are safe for the whole family, even new babies. I love this stuff because the products are naturally derived and safe for the little ones. The sunflower oil nourishes deep in the skin while forming a protective barrier. The shea butter and jojoba seed oil easily absorbs into the skin, providing immediate lasting hydration and a cooling effect. My two favorite products are the Baby Daily Protective Balm or the Adaptive Moisture Lotion. It feels so great on my dry face during the winter. I love that these products use biomimic technology that harnesses the unique life-giving properties of plants to match the skin, giving it precisely what it needs and nothing more. If you are interested in learning more about Beauty Counter, contact my consultant Linda. You can go to beautycounter.com forward slash Linda Gallagher, G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R. Let's get back to the show. That was the first time you were able to hold your bladder that you remember then? Yes. Every wow. other time I was basically, you know, doing the Depends thing, and it was just a mess. I mean, when I say it was a mess, you probably understand this. I do. I do. I understand. It really is a gift just to be able to void when you want and to hold it, too, because, yeah, I understand, too. I, I, you know, I'm on a schedule when I go to the bathroom and. Mm -hmm. You're right. A 15 min minute window is about, you know, what I've got too, or I'm going to leak and then I don't want skin breakdown, you know, but for me, I have to lay completely flat when I cast. So thank God I have a van, you know, it has a ramp that goes up inside of it. And then I just lay in the back seat to cast. So when I go anywhere, that van comes with me. I tell people it's like my rolling toilet. <laughs> I have not, Annette, been able to figure out how to cast on a, on a public toilet. You know? So wait a minute. Is that a matter of what is that? What's been the challenge there for you? Laying flat, being able to access my urethra from my wheelchair has been really tough with my fusion. I'm not able to like twist my hips up so that I. Oh, can oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's like the angle isn't right. <laughs> yes, exactly. With my fusion, you know, my spine isn't doing a relaxed. So. I can scoot to the edge. I'm not exposing myself like I need to. So that has been really troubling and trying. How does that be with infections? Um, I am actually surprised to tell you not bad. Oh, not bad. Nice. I have not, I do not need an antibiotic daily. I thought I would. And you know, I don't, were you getting fevers when you would get a UTI? And that's no, when I wouldn't. Like, it wouldn't be like that. It would just be this constant having to go to the bathroom. I mean, it just, okay. and then I knew I could just tell that, uh oh, this is, I'm oh, spasming a lot. I didn't get a fever. I never got into my kidneys, but I just had a constant spasticity in the bladder that just was like relentless. And I'm like, I've got an infection again. Yeah. On the antibiotic, I never had that. Yeah. Were you ever able to eradicate that infection on your own with 
more fluids or like did you ever get better when you did it? Yes. You know what actually ended up working for me so well, but I didn't figure it out till I was almost like got my bladder back was the D-Manos. I know it sounds crazy, but that D-Manos works for me. Tell me what what's the D-Manos? You said to oh. get like Whole Foods or something. You know or what? I, yes, I bought some of that at the co-op like my second year after paralysis. So you've been consistently using that and that your the toxins in your bladder bind to the powder and then you're able to expel it. So what I do is mix work. it with some water. I mix a teaspoon with some water almost every day. I mean, if I feel like, honestly, you know what, what even now, like if we have sex or whatever, that would be the reason why the next day I might use some D-Manos. So I might do it even twice that day, like two teaspoons, like one teaspoon twice, you know, like twice a day, I mix it with a little bit of water. But since using the D-Manos, even with my bladder being not perfect, I mean, there's times I think I might have a, I might have retained, have a little bit of residual that I'm not always getting out. I have not had a UTI in years. Wow. And if I feel one coming on, I, I do use that or I just use it sometimes just as a, you know, what do you call it? Um, prevent it in a preventative way. And it does seem to work for me. Interestingly enough, like any of the spinal cord injury groups that I am, you know, have online, like virtual peers for paras or different groups that I talk to in women's groups, uh, women with SCI, they, a lot of them use that. I don't know if it's as helpful with caffeine because, you know, caffeine, the problem with it is it can introduce infection. You do have to be really clean. So maybe you doing it the way you're doing it in your van. It's all the same bacteria. Like they did say to me at the hospital, yeah. once you get home, your body's already used to all that bacteria. You're going to have yeah. a less chance. You know, the routine you have is probably helping a lot. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. And, you know, it has been inconvenient when I am even at a hospital and it's like, gosh, I can't even go anywhere in the to the bathroom here. So I'll have to get creative and just ask, you know, if I'm getting an exam done and I'm laying flat, I'll just kindly ask the nurse, do you mind if I cath in here before I leave? And they're all very helpful and let me do that. But I think you're spot on about the good bacteria or the bacteria, at least that my body's used to being here at my home in my van. And you know, public restrooms are gross for an able-bodied person. So much. You can't do a medical job in a public restroom, like inserting a catheter. You're right. You can't put cath. No, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could introduce all kinds of bacteria. So moving along then. um, (laughs) Because I know, I feel like you and I could talk like all day, but (laughs) I know you have a life to get back to. Did you or your family members know anyone else with a disability or paralysis before you became injured and how is your family you know your mom your dad if you have any brothers or sisters um no, I didn't I didn't know anyone else with a disability like that I had known some people with like down syndrome you know what I mean but with a spinal cord injury or in a wheelchair no um it was a completely new new world for me and uh my family really they they were great I mean they were supportive uh, my mom and dad, especially, they came out. They were living with me. They were helping me with the girls. That, you know, Jordan, Natalie was two, and Anna was an infant. I just, I, I, the community wanted to get really involved. And sometimes wish now, looking back, I let them get more involved. But I was, you know, I like to throw. You know, I saw in the clipping that you sent me. I think they, they got together for you, and I thought that was really beautiful. And I thought, oh, I should have let that happen a little bit more. I think I was 
not embarrassed, but I just, I did go inward a little bit at first, you know, I just sort of wanted to be home and figuring out my new. And then when people were sort of coming around, like, oh, we'll do this like event. I'm like, like the last thing I want to do is like be out in my wheelchair, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it was that was that part of it took me a little while to adjust to just the only thing I was would do would be go to church. That would be it. Yeah. It but, is. It's hard to accept help. Uh, uh, I felt that way too. And, you know, I was so sick. I could not say no to some of my friends and they made it happen. And now I have this van thanks to that fundraiser. So I, yeah, but I also get where you were like, you know, not, not right now. It's interesting what we do when we go through something so traumatic. Some of us, you know, you were doing what you knew best to do in that moment, you know, to cope and kind of go inside yourself and be surrounded by family and that's okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with not accepting it, but people want to help, you know, some people's gifts, you know, we all have different gifts. I believe that, you know, some of us are great at slapping their jaws like myself and some of us are good at really serving others and kind of rounding up the troops and getting help. So do you feel like that community of people is still there for you today? Yes. I do. I think if I needed them, they would be back. You know, it is hard. One reason why I moved is because I really wanted to give Tyler and I a shot. And he's a great man. And, you know, I was in a small town and I knew that I didn't want to just be living at my sister's house my whole life. So um, picking up and moving, I think it's isolating, too, because I don't have people anymore only an hour drive away or. But, you know, it's pushed me at the same time to call the people I love and reach out to the people I love and really sustain those relationships from a distance because, you know, I'm a 30 year old woman. A lot of my friends are parents and are having babies now and, you know, they have their own lives too. So I just finally realized, Dan, I've got to get up and get out of here if I'm going to give myself a shot at this life and to really find my own happiness. So as much as it's been isolating, it's also pushing me to not let myself down. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself feeling more inspired to actually do this. You know, this is a perfect example of this podcast. So, and you know, the other beautiful thing too, I know you're probably surrounded by tons of support groups and things like that, but just being here in Michigan, so central, I know that there's so many resources out there that I still have yet to explore. So that'll be really exciting to, you know, dig into, but. So you you feel like I mean that was it had to be scary for you. I mean oh, yeah. brave. Yeah, super scary. I mean, again, I still feel like I'm you know, I know even you could think about yourself four years after your injury, five years after your injury. I mean, I'm totally different than I was a year after my paralysis and I know today I'm different. But if you talk to me in a year, I bet I'll feel like I learned even more than I have, you know. So I think I'm still very much coping and going through the drama of it just being so new because there were a couple of years where I didn't even feel good, you know, from the chemo and the cancer side. Now, like, I am confronting my disability and me as a woman in a wheelchair living in Michigan. So I'm really excited that I had the oof to get out here and, you know, have faith in myself. Do you um, feel when you go out and about just in the community where you were living outside of Ann Arbor right now that people are, you know, kind? And how do you feel people are with you now? Do you feel they're different than they used to be? You know, I've, I've asked myself that too. And it's that's a hard question for me to answer. Just people out and about. I've always had this demeanor of kind of laying it all out there and 
you know, I'll smile at someone and say hi to them before they'll do it to me. People are uncomfortable sometimes with someone in a chair. And I know you know that. <laughs> um, and so I, I have always been, I'm like my dad in that way. He is just a friendly guy who will say hi to anybody and strike up conversation. I think that's been a huge blessing in my ability to cope. I know in my head, just as you do, Annette, you're still Annette. You're still yes, Annette that walked all those years. You know what I mean? So yes. it's funny to me. You know, it's more funny to me now when I notice people being weird. I'm maybe irritatingly so much myself and, you know, pretend like I'm not in a wheelchair. But that's why we have a story to tell, right? Because you're no different than I am. And you and I are no different than my able-bodied neighbor, you know? So, no, I don't think people are different. I think people are receptive to kindness. And um, if I engage with them, they engage with me. And I'm excited to explore more. I want to volunteer out here at a hospice organization. I'd love to find, like, a support group for paralysis or disabilities. I haven't found anything yet, but I'm keeping my ears open for it. And yeah, I don't know. I've even told my doctors, like, heck, I could start a support group if you give me a room and, you know, help me with a plan. I would totally do that. So That's a brilliant idea. That's a brilliant idea. You yeah. should. Yeah. Or like, you know, public speak at high schools around here. I mean, I was kind of dabbling in public speaking. You know, I, I, I just, for some reason in that, I cannot force myself to sit down and write a book. I wanted to. <laughs> I'm excited about doing, you know, hour, hour and a half podcasts where, you know, at this time in my life, I feel more excited about that. Before I had the gusto to do this, though, I was dabbling <laughs> in public speaking. And I do know. It, it went really well. I, people were very inspired by my story. And I think I, with my chronic pain and just figuring out a routine, I realized that in order for me to expel the energy I want and have it really be beneficial, I just feel like I'm going to reach more people this way than having to travel around. But I mean, I, I do, I don't want to just cut that out. I want to still keep that as an opportunity. You know, keep that in mind. Um, I think with my pain and discomfort and having to go potty in my van keeps me a little bit unsure about how long I can be out or traveling alone. You get that. So I totally get that. The one thing I wanted to ask you is just with the, I mean, you were just, you were so young when this happened. I mean, I know I was young too, but you were even younger. I mean, you were even now. I feel like I'm young now. No, you are so young. But I think think about that with my, with my daughters. I mean, is there anything that you would do differently? You mean, like, what do you mean? In respect to the last five years? Yes. That part of your journey, finding out, and maybe just the beginning parts, do you feel like, I don't know, I mean, anything you wish you had done, anything that you didn't do? I think I wish, I think I wish I would have moved out a little bit sooner. I have wonderful parents and a wonderful family um, that are super helpful. I think I was so sick. You know, I went from literally survival mode, you know, getting better from the chemo, healing from my enormous incision, and then also learning how to do physical therapy just surrounding the disability of paraplegia. I I do. I feel like I might have allowed myself to be enabled or become dependent on my family for longer than I would have liked. And, you know, just like how you were saying with your husband grappling with 
blaming yourself and your situation for his addiction, I think I blame myself for, you know, my mom's depression or, you know, even my mom and my sister, you know, they don't get along all the time. And, you know, families don't always get along. That's no, of course. It's normal for family members to not get along. But, you know, even my relationship with my sister and with my family, sometimes I worry that, you know, everybody gave me everything off their back and didn't keep anything for themselves. Yeah. And I think that's why I did move out here. One big reason. Well, one reason was because I wanted to form a life with Tyler. I, I love him and he's my number one now. But I realized, you know, for all of us to really get better, we needed more separation so that we could heal. And now how long have you been here in, outside of Ann Arbor? I've only been here. I moved here July 19th. Whoa. So, so August, September, October, November. It's been four months. So. Whoa. Very That's- new. Very new. Very new. (laughs) And, you know, just to give you perspective, the first job I got after cancer and all of that rehab was January of 2017. So, you know, I didn't work for three years. Yeah, like I said, it's like every month, every year that I go through, I'm a totally different person than the year before, even the month before. And I think this is really going to push me to figure out what Tess wants and, you know, what, what I want to do with my life. And I have to give myself, Annette, more grace, though, because I, I think I'm, I think I'm hard on myself, too, about how far I should be or what I should be doing or, you know what I mean? And I don't know if you struggle with that as a parent or even just in your own self, but, you know, having the braveness to move forth with your decisions and truly believing that God has your back and, you know, if you have a passion to run with it, because that's the other thing too, like you said, with social media, people are sitting behind their screens thinking they're having authentic conversations or relationships with people by liking an image on someone's Facebook. And that's, as you know, not, that's not going to grow your ability to feel connected with anyone. You know, that's a hundred percent right. I totally, I completely agree with that. You're doing an amazing job. You really are. I don't think that I will ever feel that maybe even the level of, you know, independence that you do. I mean, I think we're all really need to be connected to one another and we are a lot more interdependent than we want to to admit. You know, what is independence? I mean, I, I'm not even sure. I wrote this whole thing about independence once because I think it's sort of an interesting, an interesting concept. I mean, I don't want to live alone in the world. I do want to be able to have certain freedoms, I guess. But I think that those connections and us relying on one another and being able to count on people, I think that's so essential. I really do. And I feel that disability just shine a light on people's fears about independence and their fears more than anything. And the fear comes from the feeling of like, well, I become a burden. But if nothing ever needed to be taken care of or no one ever needed to stop for, I mean, we, we wouldn't even have pets. I mean, yeah, we're always finding ways in our humanity to find something else to take care of. We think that those are our choices. And then when you're thrown, you throw a disability into it, it's like, well, that wasn't my choice. It wasn't my husband's choice to have this happen to me. Now it doesn't have to be like my caregiver, you know, boo-hoo. But I, I don't think of it that way at all. I think this was an opportunity for him to grow. It's been an opportunity. Yeah all my children to grow in in unselfish ways to have to think of another human being 
is really an, an important quality to develop. And hopefully when it's not me, it's going to be somebody else that they're going to be able to do that easily for, more easily, hopefully. And they'll continue to grow in that way for a long time. But I don't know. I think that you have to, I think, I think a lot about the word independence and what it means, because I do think, like I said, there's a lot of fear wrapped around the idea of being a burden to other people. And everyone's afraid that if they're going to be the burden, then they're going to be the one who's sort of left behind. Um, I don't know. I think that, and yet, look, your mom is a nurse. She's a caregiver. She's caring for, she was probably caring for people her whole life. And my brother is just like, you know, he's sort of like a tough guy, my one brother, and it just gets himself a puppy. I'm like, you got yourself another puppy, something else to take care of. You know, you can't stop yourself from wanting to take care of things. So it must be nature to do that. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, (laughs) we connect in many different ways, whether that's helping someone out or, you know, having a job or whatever it is that fulfills you. But you're right. We we do. We 100% seek it out because then what fulfills you? So I think that's where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of grappling with how do I practice good self-care, but have it not feel like a burden or like, like, a, like a job because, you know, spinal cord burnout or spinal cord injury yes. burnout is a real thing. I mean, yes. can you imagine if you and I had a cervical injury and, and we didn't have the use of our arms? No. I think about that a lot about where I am and what I want to complain about, you know, a sore on my butt cheek or. tightness in my back I think just like you well at least I have the tightness in my back or in my legs because someone else doesn't I think I could be a lot kinder to myself you should be why aren't you well I'm working on it (laughs) (laughs) keep on working on that I mean yeah I I think that I probably maybe I'm too kind to myself I don't know but I definitely would want the same for anyone else I mean I have this innate desire I would never yes I would definitely want those kindnesses for myself but I would want everyone to have those kindnesses do you know what I mean I don't think that I'm deserving of them in any particular way I just think that's the way it should be I really do I really do so I try to be kind to myself I hope that means that I would be kind and patient with others I'm pretty patient with myself too because I know that you're right. There is a burnout to it. And there is a there is a very serious monotony to it. You know, it's, monot- it's monotonous. Like, oh, does that damn chair have to go with us? Yes, it does. You know, yep. sorry. You know, yep. Uh, yep. It, it is what it is. But it's also our normal. It's like we yeah, we have, you know, I have certain things that I need to have in place in order to feel comfortable doing this or that. And, you know, your story about going to it was a daughter softball game, right? Soccer. Yeah. Daughter, soccer mm-hmm. yeah and you getting there and someone was parked in front of the entrance and uh, talking about that so whatever <laughs> happened with that did you allow yourself to be lifted over or you, you know what I think that my husband yeah I d- he didn't lift me over we didn't find the person to move the car we must have found an alternative way where it was rocky and difficult and like terrain you know what I mean but it was like around and like through like a not a canyon but through like a Oh, man. Rocky. You know what I mean? He sort of dragged me through that. But the girls, you know, were just like I said, they can we just get to the game? So they ran down. And, and then I'm, I'm sort of left with that feeling. And the last thing, the one thing I really fear when you take about burnout, the thing that I fear about spinal cord injury burnout is that at one point I'll just get so sick of all that 
stuff that's just stupid and I'll be like bitter about it and become one of those yeah. ladies in the bathroom. like, why are you in the handicap stall when there's 10 other stalls you could be in? Yeah. But it's like one of my really, I was just happened to me just yesterday. You go into the stall at, we were at, my husband and I were at a restaurant. We met another couple there, some friends, The all the bathrooms are open. And the one that's taken his handicap bathroom by someone who can walk. And then yeah. I'm like, do, 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 please hurry, please hurry, please hurry, you know? Yeah, yeah. Then, I only have 15 minutes. Yeah, like, oh, we're sorry. And they seem to be like, oh, sorry. But, you know, everyone loves that bigger stall. Isn't that just yeah. a funny thing about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. People will grab whatever they can that's easy for them, which we want, like, to be easy for our yeah. neighbors. But yeah. yeah, it's like, can you think about the people that have a van ramp when you take the only handicapped spot? that has a van ramp accessible loading zone and there are literally too many other parking spots they could have taken. I know I fear about that too. And that was another question on here about your sure, mental sorry. health. How do you No, no, I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> How do you keep yourself positive? And I am sure you see joy in your kids, but that can, I'm sure sometimes feel mundane and you have to check yourself and say, no, no, Annette, like I'm lucky to be in this and be more patient with yourself because I get better too and I sometimes have to take a deep breath step back and Tyler's really good about that with me he'll see when I'm anxious and upset and kind of check me because sometimes I don't check myself and I am bitter and I realize I'm, I have an awful attitude how do you how do you manage your mental health well, like I said, I sort of am nice with myself in the sense that, like, when I'm angry about something, I try not to strike out at someone else, but I do let myself do, you know, feel that anger. Sometimes it's justified. Sometimes people are really rude and inconsiderate. What I don't, what I usually don't do is I usually don't, like I said, I usually don't strike out because I really feel like, you know, I always picture Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, God, for they don't know what they do. I really think some people don't know what they're doing or how it's impacting me. Or how just them being just just inconsiderate and thoughtless can make it that much more difficult for someone else. Just like someone being courteous can be like literally the light shining on you. Like, thank you so much for thinking that way. The more we can think that way, there are times I think to myself, would it be wrong or right if I said to that person in the right way? I'm just curious why you didn't use one of those other 10 stalls. I've always wanted to sort of say that, but the reason why I never have is because I feel like it's going to come off in an edgy way. And then I thought, you know, maybe that person coming out of the bathroom and just seeing me wait there is almost it's, enough like yeah yep, it's powerful enough like oh my gosh and then they, they always apologize but there have been times when I felt myself rage up and then I go and I think I'm going to say something and then I'm like you know I know at the end of that I'm not going to feel empowered but I'm going to feel badly but most of the time I just like I said I think forgive them for they don't know what they do I really believe in my heart they don't know what they're doing I yeah, love that people are inconsiderate I don't even know if that's intentional. That can be like a bit of ignorance too. And usually I just, I move right past it. You know yeah. what I really usually do. That I love that. I love, <laughs> I love that you brought that up though, because just as we have to give ourselves more grace, right? When you're, yeah. you know, feeling pissed off or upset about something, you know, how would Jesus want you to look at yourself? And then when we're bitter with others, I think you're so right, whether it's ignorance or them not being educated about it or expecting to see you or I in the bathroom. I think that if we can give them the grace that Jesus gave too, I mean, that's enormous. And then 
you're able to just kind of take a deep breath and let that go, huh? I am usually. I mean, there have been times when I think my husband would get more, you know, there have been times like I would say the airport's another like testy place where I, you know, where I've actually, and I think one time I did say, and this was someone who didn't really probably deserve it because they couldn't have done much about it, but it was at, it was at the aquarium where they're like, well, the handy, the people in wheelchairs sit here. Like, and I'm like, well, my, I'm with my family. Well, you don't get to sit with your family. You know, I didn't understand that. So everyone else there can sit with their family. So now if another person who was a minority came in, and they said, the people that are all this way sit there, you know what I mean? And you yeah. don't get to sit with your family. I don't understand why that's accepted. Now, I know they're going to say it's because of space issue, you know, that people with, you know, wheelchairs. But then right. they need to think about that a little bit harder. How right. can people with disabilities still be able to enjoy the dolphin show with their children? Exactly. You didn't go to watch them enjoy the show from the other side. Like Yes, I went to see their faces, to see their reactions, and to be with them. And I did say to the guy who was at the, it was at, I'm sorry, it's in Chicago, my hometown. I love Chicago. At the Shed Aquarium, I said, that really needs to be thought about. That's not, that's not really a good solution to that. And he agreed. Um, sometimes I think like, well, I should be you know, writing that letter or, or, or really talking about those ADA things that seem like, oh, everything's so accessible. Sure, I can get into the aquarium. Sure, I can use the bathroom at the aquarium, but I can't sit with my two little girls at the dolphin show. Yeah. They've got to be there and I've got to be, that's not right. No. And if no other minority would that be accepted. They would say, forget that. That's so yeah. wrong. It'd be an outrage. No, you're so right. And, you know, that's where I guess Instead of you and I losing our cool, we have to come up with a resourceful solution. I'm willing to bet, Annette, that you are a resourceful gal, because I sure have learned more ways to be resourceful than I ever thought. And, you know, again, the fact that you and I are in manual light wheelchairs and we have the use of our arms, the fact that your husband can carry you up steps, the fact that Tyler can carry me, I mean, that is a blessing that, you know, our neighbors who are in a power wheelchair paralyzed from the neck down, they don't, they don't even get to experience that kind of ease or ability to be resourceful. My massage therapist's brother-in-law is paralyzed from the neck down. He dove into a shallow lake and was paralyzed. He was invited to a wedding. He went all the way out there. He flew to another state and he went to the venue and they could not get his wheelchair into the venue. <gasps> no. Yes. So he literally went back to the hotel. I mean, it's horrible. This happens all the time, whether, yeah, you're in a chair or from another minority group, there are still 100% um, issues with people feeling left out. And it is yes. something we have to talk about and address and be comfortable coming up with solutions. And I think if, if you and I can remain calm and express what we need to feel like we're a part of the group, right. um, we have to be willing to have those conversations because no one's going to except for us. You know, we're the we're the ones who know what it's like. The ignorant shed aquarium guy who doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know. He's just doing his job. Right, but exactly. The buck didn't stop with him and I recognize that. And I did think I should take the time at some point and maybe shed aquarium has changed since then, but for other situations like that, now I'm at a point in my life where I could write that letter, find that person who's really who's really in charge and can make some different accommodations or, hey, we might be able to rethink this and do this in a different way. But sometimes yeah. people that are, you know, this is how it is. It's just 
this is just unfortunate. It's just the way it is. Well, we can do better. You know, we need to do better. Like you said, we need, we yeah. need to do better. We want to be including people and they're not feel like they're just as welcome to be there, whether it's a concert, whether it's the Shed Aquarium. I mean, even Bill and I went to, um, it was just in San Diego. It was like a little, what is that? One of those little concert festivals or whatever. And they didn't have the handicap outhouses. They did, but they had them only if you bought the premium tickets. And I said to the guys, but I just need to use that bathroom. I swear I'm not going to try to get into anything. And yeah, nope, sorry, you didn't buy the extra upgraded tickets. And I'm like, that's not right. Then you have to bring that outhouse so that I can fit into over here. You know, I just, I was upset. I was upset. Oh my gosh, Annette, what happened with that? Well, I went to the other guy who had who did was the ADA person who was there and he said I gotta tell you something they want to say that these concerts are accessible the truth is it is the least that they could do and it's complete it's a complete joke and if they really wanted to make it accessible they would have those outhouses here I have complained to them I've said to them that's not the right way that they're doing it so I had to go outside of the venue to find, you know, a bathroom that had a handicap oh, stall. Oh, my goodness. And the funny thing is, all, and I said to the guy who was in charge of the ADA, I said, don't you find it interesting that I'm here with you in this ADA area of the concert area, and there's a couple of people in wheelchairs there, but you can count them on one hand, and every single handicap parking spot is, is full. I had to park the furthest away. They had to get someone to come and pick us up over there. It was just... And he said, you know what? The handicap parking is the biggest abuse out there. Everyone and their mother and father and sister and brother and cousin has a handicap pass for, you know, tennis elbow. Yeah. And you actually are all that way down underneath the viaduct and through the dust. And, you know, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to let that spoil going to see Squeeze. I love the band Squeeze. So I'm like, I'm not going to let that spoil that. But what can I do? And he told me where to write that letter. And I just said, you know, he said by the ADA stage where they had it was lifted up a little bit, there should be an actual bathroom. They're just a couple small things would have made all the difference in the world. Yeah. And, and you know what? Just you having that conversation with him could help numerous, numerous people. I would have liked to see them say, you know what, Annette, we'll escort you to the toilet. So that you don't, <laughs> so that you don't get into any trouble. Like, come on. Couldn't that be the least that they could do? let you through to use the darn bathroom. I mean, that is ridiculous. It was. It was right there, too. I could, I go, you're going to make me go all that way just because I didn't buy the premium ticket? Yeah, and waste, like, terrible. 40, yes, and waste, like, 40 minutes of going over there, coming back, like, geez, are you going to give me a discounted ticket then? Because <laughs> all the people yeah. here get to use the toilet, and I don't. I, oh, man, I would have been ticked. If I would have been there with you, I would have said, can you escort her to the toilet, please? Oh, Bill was getting so mad, and I thought, okay, he's getting—he's coming to my defense, and he's getting really enraged. And I'm like, okay, so I'm just gonna flip this over and just go and go to the bathroom out there quickly before the show starts. And I and I did that, but I did think to myself, that's almost like discrimination. You're gonna make me go all that way when there's a bathroom right there, and you only put the handicapped bathroom in the premium ticket area. That's not right. I mean, I just felt just a general admission. You know, I didn't get like the special whatever to use the bathroom but yeah I think they really and it's funny I think if a different guy had been guarding that bathroom he might have seen like you know what this is pretty crazy that I'm not letting this woman in a wheelchair just use that bathroom really quick yeah 
I gonna do here? What am I gonna, yeah. am I gonna like buy the wrong cocktail? Because I think they have like the premium drinks over at that tent. I really yeah. wanted to use the accessible outhouse, you know? Yes, and that is an honest request. I think that that man was just having a bad day maybe because I agree, it's like, if I were that guy, I would have let you use the bathroom. Oh, not for sure. Even, not, a, not even because of my situation, had you, had I been guarding that when I was 20, I would have let you use the bathroom, you know? That's why I was like, why is what it's really about? You're not right. You're not going to take the risk of getting arrested for like using a toilet when you really just want a cocktail that's on the top of the line. <laughs> right. So, okay. sorry. Sorry to go on. That was sort no, of. No, no. I'm happy. Okay. So, I really want to just quick mention the HBO Any One of Us. That's how um, I was connected with you. I was so inspired by your story just with the soccer field. I was like, that is literally me every day of the week. Because you get it. You know, we go places all the time, whether it's a handicapped stall or a public restroom that doesn't, isn't accessible to us, but it should be. I mean, we're constantly trying to adapt and figure out what's best and how to do it. How did, how did you get um, in touch with HBO's Any One of Us? um, They got in touch with me because I'm an ambassador for Wings for Life. So Wings for Life is Wings for Life is a spinal cord research foundation that really spends all of the money toward finding a cure for paralysis. So they're totally focused and dedicated on the research, finding the cure, doing, you know, finding the newest and the latest things that people are trying to do all over the world. I'm an ambassador for them. Red Bull is the corporate arm of Wings for Life. They're based in Austria, but now they have a headquarters also in Santa Monica. So I knew um, my doctor at Yale actually sits on the board for Wings for Life. And they had called me up and said, hey, would you be in this documentary? So, wow. Sure. That's so neat. And did, you have, did you have any reservations about it or were you just like, no. nope, I'm doing it? No, zero. First of all, it's always cathartic to tell your story. It, it just it just is. And you realize, as you said, every year, every time I tell it, I've actually actually grown a little bit. And I can sort of see that in the way I'm even answering the questions. And even then I can sort of see it. That was a couple of years ago that I did the, that series of interviews. No, it was great. Paul's a really great, generous person. He could have made it all about him. He let so many of us have a voice. I thought they had a really nice balance of people in the film. And balance of stories and, you know, the hopeful pieces of it and also the pieces that are really, you know, the realities. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. I was very inspired by everybody's story. And it, and it is. It's like. It was so nice. They were all so nice. Yes. And none of us have to feel alone in our struggle. We, you know, if you're brave enough to open your mouth and share your story, you're going to meet other people that can either be inspired by you or find overlapping positive things about each other's story you know there's just so much that can come from it so that's super super neat um, <laughs> uh, what is your book called again Annette where fairy tales go okay and people can find it on Amazon yeah give us a little snippet about your book I mean what do you want people what message do you want people to get from that or what pushed you to finally write it if that's an easier one but what message do you want people I to think learn I it because at the time that I wrote it I had broken my femur so I was really, I was a little bit in an unhappy, sort of a sad place when I had broke my femur. We had just moved out to California, and then I fall out of my wheelchair and break my left leg. And I was pretty, Georgia was so little, and then I felt even more sort of unable to care for her. And all the feelings that I had just been hanging around and this, the sorrow of leaving Connecticut and trying to start something different and and 
I don't know. And my father was also dying at the time. He was getting older and he was getting sort of toward that. But I just think, I guess the, the overall message is that love never dies, really. Yeah. Love is one thing that carries us through everything. And I do think those books are cathartic to write. They can be cathartic to read. I hope mine is written, but it's well enough to, to read it. But it's really not any one message except maybe that that would be the one thing. I mean, I think I've had great love in my life and I think I'm learning to love and I'm still learning to love better. And certainly my dad taught me that. And now I'm trying to leave that gift of that he gave to me with my children and Bill for sure. I mean, love is what will get everybody through this ride of life, right? I mean, we can give forgiveness and we have to give ourselves forgiveness and grace and you know, like I told you, I'm kind of working through that on my end. So I'm really looking forward to reading your book. I'm going to send you one. I'm going to get your address at the end of this. Please send do. You. I would love it. And, you know, thank you so much, Annette, for being on here. Um, I think everybody's going to really love it. If you ever have any ideas about something you want to talk about or just rant about with me, we can pop back on here anytime. But, like, I'm super appreciative. I One thing I really want to do with this podcast is, interview people like yourself that have been through traumatic experiences. I mean, I can't imagine being a new mommy and going through that and, and wondering like all the things, how am I going to parent this kid? How am I going to parent the kids I have? How am I going to be a good wife? You know, all the, the crazy thoughts you have, because you're doing it, you know, you've overcome yeah. it and look where you are now, 20 years. I know. So, so <laughs> how old is your youngest and how old is your oldest? So I have a 21-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 16-year-old, 15-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 6-year-old. Ah, oh, a 6-year-old. Oh, yeah, she's adorable. That's so <laughs> exciting. Oh, awesome. Did the hospital compensate you at all for that episode? Oh, yeah, there was a lawsuit. It took six, six years to settle, and it never went to trial but the day before the trial was started, they offered a settlement and I I really didn't have that fight in me to like, oh, I need to get more, whatever. I just wanted it to settle it and move on with my life. And that's what we did. Yeah. Well, it just it took a long time because she'd been the doctor had a drug problem. She'd been in and out of rehab and the hospital sort of concealed that. So all of the things that happened with her and what actually transpired with the epidural her having the drug problem, her not being sure exactly what you put in my epidural cocktail and how it burned my spinal cord. Because that night, the belief was she was under the influence of fentanyl um, and she really didn't know what she was doing. It just ended up being this long, I hate to say, just sort of ugly, you know. Yes. There wasn't well, a lot of forgiveness or a lot of opportunity for there to to get to a better place. It was just... And so I said to Bill, I want to settle this thing. I, I really... I regret that only in the sense that I think that our compensation would have been if we'd held out just a little bit. I mean, I do think the jury was going to be, you know, kind to me, but I just kind to me in terms of financially. And so sometimes I regret that. I think it would have been a little easier on my husband if I fought a little harder for that. But I'm like, geez, it's all just boiling down to to money. And at that point, I really believed, well, I'm just going to walk again. So I'm going to defile the odds here and I'm not going to need rehab forever and I just need to get through this and so I don't need this to be some like crazy big settlement so I think in the end I regret that because in the end you don't realize then when you're so early out how much the finances will play play a role 
And it is important to be financially, like you were saying about getting your van and you need wheelchairs and you need equipment and you just, and you really, if you, you want to be able to afford the rehab and afford the stuff that's a little out of the box. So finances play a role. I don't think I could look at that at the time. It was all from an emotional space for me, but it was, it what there was still a settlement. It still was generous in many ways. And I didn't go for blood and sue everyone. It was just really the hospital and that anesthesiology group. I just sort of kept it like, this is what happened at this hospital. And they were culpable in the sense that they had known she had a problem. They still let her, they still let her practice medicine with the drugs yeah. she was addicted to. I mean, there was a culpability for that. And so I didn't feel, you know, that that was the wrong thing to do. I ended up losing my ability to walk and there was no way they were going to be able to restore my leg function. So it's sort of funny that money is a thing that ends up being so that sort of a strange like Desmond Tutu is it Desmond Tutu the bishop in South Africa he says when someone takes your pen you want your pen back and in this case my legs were taken from me and I couldn't get those back so what's the what's the amount of money that your legs are worth can't put a price on that right and I can see how the ugliness of just what happened with yes. her and her battles. And then yes. you fighting for monetary settlement. I mean, I can only imagine that must have been so exhausting. And I can see why you'd want to put an end to it. But yeah, it's it's important, too, that we do advocate for ourselves when someone does us wrong. And I'm just so sorry that happened to you. Um, but I'm so happy that I know you today. Oh, you are. <laughs> I'm so happy that I, I'm so happy you reached out to me. You're such a lovely person. Well, thank you. Now, so, so she mixed the epidural cocktail wrong, that was the issue? Or did she yeah. put it in the wrong place? No, she didn't put it in the wrong place. She put it right in the L3 where it was to go. And it, they did a lot of looking at my anatomy to make sure that something else didn't happen. You know, that wasn't like, did I have a stroke or whatever? No, none of those things were the case. They believe now that what happened at the time, it took them a little while to sort of like come to this, that she, yeah, that she put the wrong chemical. It was like a mix of a cocktail when they do an epidural. And that what she put in there was toxic to my spinal cord. Transverse myelitis is all this swelling in my body, reacting to it in the way that it did. And then the, all of those nerves just got, you know, uh, devoid of oxygen. And so. Yeah, but, yeah. Wow. That's it. <laughs> but, all right. <laughs> How have you been able to stay active, Annette? Like, was physical activity important for you before this? Like, walking, hiking? I mean... How do you like, break a sweat and feel active and powerful as a woman now in a chair? What do you do to make yourself feel good? Well, I can do Pilates and yoga. Obviously, I can do all the stuff for my upper, my core. You know what I mean? And I was doing a lot of Pilates for a long time. But I still have enough leg movement that I can clip into a spin bike and spin. Oh, awesome. So That's I do that. great. That feels good. It feels good just to move my legs. And probably if I would probably love it if I got in a pool. I just don't really love getting in a pool. But I used to from time to time. And it felt good and freeing to move my legs in, in water like that. When I Now that I'm not doing that intense regimen of physical therapy, probably spinning. And honestly, I'm thinking about doing Pilates again. But I did Pilates for – I used to have, like, abs of steel. Yeah. <laughs> not anymore, but – I believe it. Me too, sister. I don't have abs of steel anymore. Can you can you get in and out of your chair from the floor on your own? Like, what does yeah. a normal day look like for you as far as getting ready, your routine? Where do you need the most help? 
you mind just sharing that last I can do most everything on my own. Probably even this is a terrible shower for me at the house we currently live in, but I could do it with a little, with a minimal assist in terms of like, I could just transfer from that chair to like a shower chair, but it's a, it's a little tricky because there's like a big, it's sort of like a higher step there. Beside that, yeah, I can get from the floor to my chair pretty easily. I, I keep myself at a pretty low weight because of that. Sometimes I've had some problems with my left shoulder as of late. So I'm really trying to take care of that and watch out for that because I don't, I, it's like, you know, I push my chair the way you do. Now it's been 20 years. My shoulders are saying, really? Yeah. <laughs> do we keep on doing this? Yeah. <laughs> right? I hear you. My hands feel like that. My caster wheels are sticky. So they had to order new ones. I think the ball bearing like bent or something, but I tell you like the joints in between my fingers are just achy and it is, I can only imagine with your shoulders because I have some of that too where my hardware is up between my shoulder blades, the muscles that kind of go across your back, Mm -hmm. they really ache or they'll jolt with pain. So yeah, Yeah. I wonder about how that affects your day-to-day routine. Well, yeah, I do pretty well with it actually, but I have been, I have been not, I have been babying my left shoulder a little bit and doing some lightweight exercises with it just to try to keep it strong those little tiny muscles and the labrum back here and my rotator cuff and I did have to go in and see the doctor um he did give me a cortisone shot I think it's it's doing a little bit better but I know now that it's not as strong as I would like it to be so I need to sort of be taking care of it I I can't imagine being out an arm I don't know how I do everything I do in the house I mean because I I'm the one who sweeps the floors. I'm the one who cooks every meal. I'm the one who puts the, you know what I mean? I load and unload the dishwasher. I do everything in the home. And so um, not those things. Maybe they take me longer. Maybe they can be challenging at times. But, yeah, I can I can manage all that. It's actually, I've got my house sort of mastered. I would say it's outside in the world where I find my my greatest challenges, you know, because. Yeah, yeah. yeah you've been able to overcome being an awesome house housewife and a mama and that is hard though I bet it took you a while to figure out how to sweep your floor well it it did I was like I'm not gonna be able to do anything oh turns out I can do it it just takes me longer maybe it's not as great but yeah obviously I can still do all the laundry and the girls uh they don't blink twice by having me do it either so yeah I bet they don't complain that's awesome I feel the same way about house chores around here too and Tyler's gone I'm like you know what it's good that I got five chores done inside because it is hard to do on your own now when you vacuum in it do you put like a battery on your lap and have a foldable like nozzle or how do you sweep how do you do that just regularly well I mean I sweep with a broom but I'm trying to think the vacuum oh my gosh the I actually don't right now I'm in a house with all wood floors so I don't really have a carpet to vacuum. So right now I'm doing like a broom sweep and then I can mop. So right. just the mop and then, you know what I mean? That I move and then you can mop and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Sometimes I do have the lady come and help me do some of the deeper cleaning, the mopping piece of it. Because that sure. very tedious, long thing. But all of the day-to-day sweeping, toilets, sinks, dishwasher, all of that, that's like a, the laundry for sure. I mean, that's sort of a breeze for me. Mopping is probably... The hardest, and because I have wood floors, like I said, I don't really have a, a vacuum at the moment. I haven't yeah. asked for a vacuum in a while. Well, you know asked- what, mopping, that's a good idea, because that'll just get the rest of the hair and dust up, no problem. It, it so, does, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Now, do you work for Wings for Life? Do you work for them? Or no. are you not working right now? I'm not working right now. I'm working on the next, uh, either I have something written for a possible next book. And uh, I'm thinking about, will I do that? Or will I just go into this other idea of writing children's books? So I've I've got already sketched out a couple ideas because I, I wrote some children's books when the girls were young. And they're always like, Mom, you should publish those. So I'm thinking about doing that. But I also wrote something on reflections on home because I realized going through moving a lot what home means to me so I I've been working on on that because that's again sort of like sort of like where fairy tales go it's very personal but I don't know for me as a woman it's been important to the space that I'm in and the space that I occupy with my children has been a very important thing to me yeah yeah. what it means to be home what is home yeah it's amazing well thank you so much for talking (laughs) Yes, and people want to look up your book, they can, and yes. I'm excited to read it, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing your children's books and your second book come out maybe down the road or whatever you get into, and that I know it's going to be really powerful. So thank you so oh, much. welcome. This has been Push Diaries Podcast. Please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.